In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Learn humility from your function. Butter is a viable option. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Take off your shirt and stay a while. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. This just in from the Paratopia News Desk. Vacationers Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney are still missing. It's been over two weeks since they were last seen. We have no idea what happened to them. We hope they're okay. That was the cue to end this segment. Why is the music still going? It's still going. And they're still missing. It's very exciting as you... Okay, the music's done. So very cold. Cold and alone. Yeah, so much for drinking our way out, Bozo. Well, except for you, Jeff. Thanks for that. I don't know how long I can tread this water. You know, Jeremy, I hear something down here. It's moving. Uh, that'd, that'd be us treading water, right? Maybe. There's something moving over there. Look at that over there. You see those eyes? They're huge. Fudgy the whale. What is that? Is it Fudgy the whale? It's glinting, whatever it is. I'm starving, Jeff. I'm freaking... No. I'm getting tired of treading. all my life. I just peed in the pool aid too, by the way. Pee on me when <laughs> you're not strong. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 all I got. That's it. That's your yeah. that's your humor at this difficult time. <laughs> that's that's all I've got. Well, you should have just gone for that hatch, huh? This was really worth the two week wait. Crap, something closer now. The P? It is. It looks thin in it. This looks like this looks like aviator sunglasses. If I didn't know any better, I'd say that was the trademark look of Bill Burns! Hi everybody, it's me, Bill Burns from UFO Hunters. I knew they'd send someone to rescue us if we just sat on our asses and waited long enough. And actually, uh I'm kinda glad it was you. Oh, and Bill, you brought me the sandwich! I love you! Ugh. Yeah, so... I've always had questions... <clears throat> about the UFO hunting. <coughs> do, you, do you have any mechanisms, or are you building any... Uh, for future episodes, that you can actually go into places... 
to detect, I don't know, uh, UFOs in the same sort of way that ghost hunters do, that they have these certain set of instruments that they go around and use in every episode. Is there anything like that for UFO hunting? Um, I, I think there is. Um, say that again, because I, I, I want to make sure I'm getting you accurately. Well, I'm saying that, you know, on Ghost Hunters, they go around, they have an EMF reader, they have, uh, you know, little recording devices to capture EVPs, and they do this on every episode. Is there anything like that that you can use in the UFO field to try to capture uh, UFOs? Sure. I mean, let's just say that we're doing something with um, a crash site, okay? You want to do trace evidence. And if you're doing trace evidence, what you really have to do then is... um, either use devices or use something that, that basically bespeaks um, that something left something there. The whole premise of going to a UFO crash site is that you're looking for something that ideally a UFO left when it was on the ground. I mean, that's what you're looking for, okay? Mm-hmm. And so um, you... You, you look for things that are, for example, you assume that a UFO will leave uh, magnetic traces, right? It was there. Is there a magnetic trace? Well, we don't know about magnetic traces, whether it's there, so we use a, a magnetometer. <clears throat> um, UFOs will leave. UFOs uh, may also leave uh, radioactive traces. If you remember the Dent Waters case, you'll remember that in Dent Waters, um, when the people came from the Defense Department, from the MOD and from the Air Force to check radiation around the landing impressions in Rendlesham Forest on night two, they found that the radiation in that circle where the three landing impressions were, that radiation was greater than the background radiation. So those are two things. Then, if you talk to somebody like a, a Ted Phillips, who has done a lot of trace evidence research, or um, John Ventry from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, who did trace evidence research on the Bucks County flap um, last year, and I was at that convention this this past Saturday, what you find is that there are all sorts of strange things that are in... Um, alleged or reported landing sites? And so the answer is yes. We don't use the same kinds of EVP machines that the ghost hunters use, but we use fairly conventional devices like um, magnetometers, Geiger counters, ground-penetrating radar. We take soil samples, so we'll have a sample kit. Uh, If there are metallic traces, we take it back to one of the four laboratories that we use. Mm -hmm. And they analyze the soil traces. This is what we this is what we did in in uh, the Aurora case, where we found aluminum in in the well on uh, Judge Proctor's property. Took it back to the lab, and the guy said it's aluminum, but it's strange. It's aluminum with a very high iron content, not the aluminum you buy today. It's pre 1930s aluminum, which was very revealing to us. So you, the answer is yes. That's what we do. All right. You know, hearing this uh, about uh, physical evidence and things of that nature. And knowing that you're such an open guy to various interpretations of what this stuff is, does that lead you in the direction to believe um, the extraterrestrial hypothesis or some sort of nuts and bolts hypothesis over 
any other, or is it all still open to you? It's really all still open to me because it's so situational. I mean, take a case like Delphos, Kansas. You cannot explain the, uh, in fact, John Schuessler calls Delphos the best UFO case ever. Um, you can't explain the ground traces. You can't explain why the soil doesn't grow anything today. You can't explain the luminescent ring around the soil after the landing. I mean, you just can't explain it. Um, what is it? Um, I say that that leads me to an extraterrestrial uh, answer. Um, take the Aurora airship mystery. That leads me to, it was a balloon. It was a, a, a metal-clad balloon. We were flying these things as early as the, 18, as the early 1800s. They were used in the Civil War as surveillance vehicles. And when the gasoline engine was invented, people just hooked them up to balloons, and off they went. That's what it was. That's what crashed. The balloon hit the windmill and exploded. But, but you don't buy that for Roswell, funny enough, do you? I don't buy that for Roswell at all, because Roswell, unless Walter Hout is lying, and why would he lie on his deathbed? That absolutely makes no sense. I could see why he would lie on his deathbed. I mean, I, I could see that. I don't think he did. But um, I could see that he's going off. He knows he's going to die soon. Uh, what's his face? Don Schmidt is his good friend. Don Schmidt dictates, and, and Tom Cowley told me he dictated it, a statement, um, and then um, Walter Hatt ratified it. He affirmed it. But, I, but Walter Hatt was always an honest guy, so I don't think he lied. I don't think he let Don Schmidt put lies in his mouth. I think he let Don well, Schmidt... he read it, right? What? I read, he read it before he signed it, right? I read it. I, I think that... No, 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 no. Uh, Walter Hout read it before he signed it, right? He read it with his daughter and his lawyer. Julie Schuster and his lawyer were in the room. So he didn't just sign it. His lawyer was there. So this was an affirmation of an affidavit, legally sworn. Bill, I was curious. Um, do, I know you guys, uh, and setting up a, uh, a TV show and whatnot, I know there's a lot of production issues that you have to go through and a lot of travel accommodations that have to be set up to go on any given case at one point in time. Do you guys have anything in place that, um, I'm just thinking of like uh, flaps that are going on here and there, like uh, Marley Woods or off and on with Pine Bush in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Uh, well, we, do you guys I'm, often get into being able to like jump on something at a minute's notice or is it uh, kind of yeah. infeasible to do that? Sometimes, well, given the logistics of the show, it's never easy to make a quick shift, but we do. Um, I can't talk about episodes coming up, but you're really hitting some beats. But I can't talk about episodes coming up. I can say that we made a dramatic shift um, in November of 2007 to stop what we were doing and go to the National Press Club in Washington. Okay, where we picked up Charles Dubac, Parviz Jafari, Ray Bowyer, um, Oscar Santa Maria, and built them into future episodes. So that was one of those U-turns, got them, did the UFOs, UFO dogfights episode in season one. The, um, let's see, uh, in season two, and at the end of season one, we dropped everything to go to Stephenville. Right. And that was a great, great episode, Stephenville. Right. 
I have a question. Uh, you know, Jeff and I uh, watched the uh, Cash Landrum episode recently, and um, you had on there the, I, I don't even remember his rank, but uh, was he the Air Force guy who uh, looked into that or, or wrote up the report on it? He was Lieutenant Colonel George Saran. Okay, how did you get him, and why did he look like he really didn't want to be there? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, it's funny. Um, we got him, and that was producer Kevin Barry's, uh, Kevin Barry, who produced it, has been producing UFO segments for various shows for about 15 years. So he's very experienced. In fact, we're lucky to have two very experienced producers, Kevin Barry and uh, our, our old friend John Greenwald Jr. from uh, The Black Vault, who's uh, producing the episode that we're doing now, and uh, which I can't tell you about, but he's producing it. And um, he, he is, um, he's got great connections. The secret for a producer for this show is excellent connections so that you've got to know, um, you know the people who are really, you're going to roll the dice on somebody whose story you're not sure about, but if you know your people, you know them. So, um, look, we got Colby Landrum, who wasn't on TV before, um, Kevin had worked with him, worked with George Saran, so we really lucked out in getting George Saran to come to say to Colby, he knew he was going to see Colby, to say, look, Colby, I'm sorry this happened, but when I did my investigation, we found no source of the helicopters. So he came to say that. What he was uncomfortable about was he realized, my God, I'm on camera, and um, Colby's really challenging me. And so... That was why in that episode uh, a few weeks ago, I was able to ask him, look, Colonel Saran, is it even possible that some black ops, some secret unit could have run an operation with helicopters with uh, Chinooks and you wouldn't know about it? And he conceded, yes, it could happen. And he opened the door a crack. And that was why, that was how we got to Task Force 160. Huh. Did you believe him when he uh, said he didn't know anything about it? Um, I believed that he was told, go here, go here, go here, go here. Don't go here. And yet I've heard from people in the land of black ops, okay, um, names shall not go mentioned, but people in the land of black ops, he consulted me on this. And they've criticized the show as not being accurate. And I was saying, hey, wait a minute. If it's black ops, of course they're going to criticize the show for not being accurate because somebody from black ops is not going to say, oh, yeah, Task Force 160, they were doing that super-duper hyper-nuclear drive we were trying out. Mm-hmm. They're not going to say that. Does anyone, uh, any of your contacts in black ops that you trust uh, ever say, yeah, yeah, we know all about this and give you some sort of you know, outlandish Area 51 story that we've all heard or... Do they shy away from that? No, they won't. Um, if they're really truly in black ops, they will not give you a story that's true information. They'll give you a story that's disinformation. So how do you how do you trust them? You don't. You just that's the thing about black ops that's so great. There is no trust. Gary, there is no circle of trust. I mean it doesn't exist. You um you, you basically take it with a grain of salt and try and verify 
by uh, cross-matching other people's stories, but you know they're feeding you stuff that's wrong because when you repeat it on the Jeremy Vanny and Jeff Whitman show, they will know where that's coming from. Bill, I've had a lot of people write and ask me about uh, where your co-host came from on the show. Uh, Who? Pat. Uh, a couple people just off of, uh, I'm on ATS uh, website a lot, Above Top Secret, and I noticed a couple of posts uh, when the show first aired um, asking uh, about uh, Pat. Um, uh, Pat and your, Pat. your doctor, I can't remember his name, uh, Ted Ackworth. How did you come across those guys? Well, first, Pat. Pat was a Nancy creation. Um, he had written the magazine back in 2004 about a, uh, a sighting he had uh, over um, Venice Beach. Well, hold on. So, uh, we, we, should, we should add that this is your wife, Nancy Burns, we're talking about. My wife, the editor of UFO Magazine. Not that he's a Nancy boy. We're talking about Nancy Burns. Nancy Burns, editor-in-chief, UFO Magazine. Um, her magazine took it basically doing everything. Now, she heard from Pat back uh, five years ago and uh, loved the fact that Pat went out, and this is the genesis of the show, that Pat went out and actually tested this flying disc that he thought he saw, and he did, took a video, launched a balloon and to see if it matched what he saw, and then did a split-screen video, put it up on the web. And he got a torrent of responses from people. I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen this, I've seen that. And so Nancy said to Pat, basically, um, look, this is great. Look at all the great responses you've gotten. Why don't you go to the local people in California and talk to them, take some video, see what they have in the way of video. He did. Then she said to me, this is great. Why don't you go to Hearst, which is where you're doing your movie. We had done Day After Roswell with Hearst and see what they say. They liked it. We spent a year futzing with it. Then they said, ah, UFOs are dead on TV. We won't do it. So I was working with a production company called MPP, Motion Picture Production, on doing the UFO files and history. Took it to them. They liked Pat. Um, Pat had garnered his two other friends, this guy Kevin Brune and this guy Julius Willis, and they were a great group. And so um, they were set up in a UFO segment, UFO file segment on History Channel, for going out on the Redondo Beach Trench looking for USOs. History loved it. It was one of the highest-rated segments they ever had with those three. And then I was on the boat basically saying, oh, here's what's happening now. They're underwater. They're looking for this. So history made uh, them an offer. We packaged the show, which is what I do in real life, and that's how the show began. Ted came to us because we were looking for a real um, Ph.D. physicist. And ideally, somebody who could fly a plane, be kind of like an Indiana Jones. I'm a PhD, um, I'm from a top quality school, but yet I can put on a pair, a, a flight suit, and, um, you know, kick the tires and light the fires. So that's how we got Ted. Wow. All right. I want to uh, sort of swerve off the road here and take you into Bill Burns' territory that... Uh 
no one has heard before on the radio, um, which is, well, why don't we start off by you, why don't you give us your background in psychology? Well, basically, um, I have a PhD mainly in linguistics, and the field of linguistics was psychology of language, and uh, which is what I taught uh, for well, these many moons in New Jersey at Trenton State College. And um, I am the chairman of the board of Sunrise Community Counseling Center in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and I've written a lot of books, serious psychology books, on serial killers, episodic crime, and also um, suicide, which I'm finishing now. And uh, the, so, so I've done a lot of work on the deviant, psycho- uh, the deviant uh, psychology and, psych- and psychological calling cards of uh, repeat offenders, of actually episodic offenders. And uh, I worked for the Department of Justice in um, evaluating police homicide departments and cold case squads and sexual offender profiling. Um, based on the equipment that they received from the Bureau of Justice Administration grants. So I've done a lot of work in the area. And it's basically making, taking all those big guns and having them bear on the UFO question for abductees and witnesses and things like that. Yeah, so how does, how do we stack up against crazy? Um, well, you know, what's interesting is the, uh, the difference is um, there really are no standards for measuring. Oh, oh, I'm also on the chairman of the, I'm also on the board of directors of an organization called OPUS. Don't ask me what the acronym stands for. I'm only on the board. But um, that is an organization dealing with um, abductees. So uh, anyway, that, so, so that's what I do. And, and really... One of the things we're trying to do is answer the question you just asked. How do you stack up against crazy? How do you stack up against um, people who are delusional? Well, we hear about this compartmentalized delusion, right? There, there's a, I don't know what it's called. You probably do, right? Where there's a com- mm-hmm. where you're, you're completely sane in all aspects of your life but one. Uh, how does that fit us or does it? It doesn't. I mean... There's a lot of leakage that goes on, to be blunt. I mean, you can appear sane, you can kind of not talk to yourself and be striking out at all these demons around you, but you can be a complete paranoid schizophrenic. Now, or you can be neurotically paranoid. You can see the degrees. A schizophrenic basically is a person who is divorced from reality. There really is no hard and fast, after all these years, of over 100 years of research, there really is no hard and fast definition of schizophrenia. There are all these descriptions of it, but um, a schizophrenic is divorced from reality. It's purely and simply. Um, whether uh, he or she hears command voices, whether she is acting out of her own delusions, and that's mainly the case, person is acting, it's like, it's like a feedback loop. There is no reality that penetrates in the worst of all cases. You are simply reacting to your own delusions and hallucinations. And you can either be frantic, uh, catatonic frenzy, or um, basically um, just 
in a catatonic trance-like state, but you're not in a trance. You're just hearing voices and reacting to things. You're completely divorced. You can be talking to yourself in the paranoid vein. Everybody's after you. Everybody's getting to you. Um, you have symptoms of hypergrandiosity. Um, you, you are the counselor, the diplomatic counselor to the star people who have anointed you to give their message to planet Earth, and you have unbelievable powers conferred upon you by the star people. That would be one definition of uh, hypergrandiosity schizophrenia. Huh. And these people are all around. So, I mean, and, y and yet you can go through, but you're going through life, and you hear voices. You've heard that one. You hear voices. They're telling you to do things, telling you to accomplish certain tasks, and that's known as command voices. When the command voices say kill, it's son of Sam, show some gui. Huh. You see the tissue paper thinness of that separation. Yeah. Well, I got a thinner one for you, Bill. Here, here's one that I came across about 10 years ago. There was a, a lady that uh, my wife and I used to see at just about every MUFON symposium that there was uh, in D.C. and Baltimore. And uh, you wouldn't have had to talk to her more than three and a half minutes to decide that this woman had some serious mental issues, without a doubt. Um, uh, everything from uh, uh, her stopping in mid-conversation saying that uh, they're listening, we've got to be quiet, we can't talk anymore, that kind of thing, uh, to really, obviously, paranoid behavior, I mean, to the ninth degree. But yet I heard sometime later from uh, uh, a MUFON guy that uh, she, did get, uh, she did get treatment. She got uh, uh, institutionalized for a certain amount of time. And during the time that she was in um, getting treatment, her neighbors actually had an event where they were having a barbecue kind of in the late evening hours. And um, there was a sighting over top of her apartment building. <laughs> And apparently the thing sent down a beam and, uh, and affected people at this party, um, and then it left. Apparently, the way he talked to me, that uh, these, this UFO was there looking for her. Um, so how many of the cases out there do you think, how hard is it to tell if someone's actually been driven a little bit over the edge from something like that? Or... I mean, where is the where is the the line of demarcation in saying this person's having delusions versus this person's been driven absolutely crazy by the experience itself? Is there a way to tell that? There is. I mean, it, it's very hard to do, but there is, um, I, 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 and it's almost kind of like laughingly simple. Um, and you just gave the answer, Jeff. Yeah. You said, yeah, there was a barbecue, and there, and people saw a ship, and, and it was looking for her. Well, mm -hmm. that's, ex that's evidence extrinsic to this woman's condition. Mm -hmm. it's, um, whether it substantiates what she's saying or not, that's not, the, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm saying um, there's people at a barbecue who have a sighting. Right? It has nothing to do with her per se, but if then that sighting, that, that, that craft, whatever it is, hovers over her place, and they all know from that that it's looking for her. Well, that's evidence, 
evidence extrinsic to what she's saying that then substantiates her story, so you then give that story more credibility. Right. If right, the witnesses are credible, then the story has credibility. Then you go to the next stage, which is, okay, so she's not lying. She actually believes this. Right. Well, what does she believe? She believes this, uh, uh, these things are after her. Okay, she believes these things are after her. I get it. Now, you have to ask, did it going after her drive her uh, over the edge? And the answer is probably yes, because what do you do when you're so frustrated that you know the truth? This is not a psychological delusion. You know the truth. Unfortunately, it's the truth nobody believes. So you get increasingly frustrated because you don't have the psychological mechanism to deal with knowing something that you can't talk about. Right. right. So, yeah, I, I mean, that... I, yeah, I guess the I guess the the bad part about her situation was is that after that, when people, when you know, guys, people did start questioning her about her experiences, is that they ran into a brick wall in the sense of, well, how much of this is her delusion and how much of this is the actual experience happening? So that's kind of like the hard part to kind of separate those two out. And what is she making up in in her mind uh, that could be happening versus what really is happening uh, for that? So. You know that becomes the problem at that point, right? And 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 that's the problem because you, at that point, you really don't know um, where the dividing line is. My take would be that she could be reacting in a very neurotic way, maybe even in a psychotic way, to the experience that she's had, even though that might be a valid experience, right? I mean, she's actually being spoken to. She's actually hearing real command voices, not command voices coming out of um, a, um, a schizophrenic condition. And the fact that this witnesses saw this over the house means that there might be some real substantiation, but she still might be totally um, schizophrenic. It might have driven her there. Yeah, that's true. Bill, do you have any sense of uh, whether the just general opinion of abductions or abductee testimony has changed in the psychological community since, um, you know, Mac and the MIT conferences? Yeah, uh, no, because the uh, psychological community flees in terror from this. Um, the, psych- the serious psychiatric community, and I'm going to really make a distinction between the psychiatric community and the psychological community, because I work with a lot of, of you know, big neuropsychiatrists, serious MDs. You know, you walk in saying, I saw a UFO and they're telling me something. Um, they will put you on, um, they will put you on Xanax before you even sit down in the chair. So, um, and depending upon how nervous you are, it could be how it all. So, um, and that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's how they react. They're, they're doctors. They're medical doctors. They prescribe. The, um, so, I guess what I'm trying to say is this, that in the psychiatric community, they run in the other direction. In the psychological community, you have psychologists that are PhDs and have clinical therapy licenses that are willing to embrace the possibility of alien abductions as a syndrome of something, but not of alien abductions, okay? Um, you start hanging out a shingle saying, I'm a PhD, I'm, um, I'm um, an abduction doc, 
and you will find yourself being investigated by um, the licensing board for the state you're in, um, even if you, even before you finish hanging your shingle. And they're going to want to know why, because because look what that does. I mean, let's just take for, let's just assume, just for the sake of argument, that it's real, that they're real things. But if they're real things, then you are not having a psychological problem. If you're not having a psychological problem that fits the um, the uh, the manual, right? The um, what is it? The DSM. Um, four or five of billable conditions, then why go to a psychologist? He's going to tell you you're not sick. Well, okay, fine. integrate it into your life, maybe. Well, that's true, but what the person is saying is, um, and you don't need to have a psychology degree for that. that. That's one of the problems. So you will get, in some cases, hypnotic regression, in some cases, a whole bunch of... Um, well, you'll get an evaluation, there'll be a diagnosis, depending upon how frenzied you are, there'll be some form of triage, um, and then once it's determined that you're not a danger to yourself or others, which is the first thing any good psychologist or psychiatrist should look for, are you a danger to others? If so, you know, you're off to the institution. Um, so, Find a psychologist that can help you accept the reality, who has embraced the reality of alien abductions, and then helps you integrate that into your life. What's the big question now? So, so, so you get beyond the um, paradigm shift nature of this. Now what's the big question? I mean, let's be blunt. Do you like open it up and spread it? Because that's exactly what they're doing. It's okay to be angry probed. Okay to stick some kind of an alien implant into you. Don't worry about the fact that they put some cup over your genitals and they're taking your seven. How do you integrate that into your life? You're basically not in, I mean, think about this. You're not in control of your life. When a strange blue light or beam comes into your bedroom at night, hey, you know what? Lie back and enjoy it. Um, for some people, it's a very frightening experience. How do you tell that person to integrate that into your life? Where is your defense mechanism? Look at the whole nature of what a psychology of a human being is. That's, dif that's difficult to do. Well, on that what note... Psychology yeah. will ask you to do that. On, on the, the note of, um, you know, aliens doing those sorts of gross experiments on people, um, do you find a difference between hypnotically retrieved memories of what happens during an abduction and... Uh, just naturally retrieve memories? Yes, big difference. Um, sure, they can be the same. My problem with that is when a regression therapist actually inserts a suggestion into the matrix, and, and uh, without mentioning names, episodes, whatever, I've seen those tapes. And um, I've actually heard a hypnotic um, um, a regression therapist say, so... When you looked into the alien's eyes, had you seen that person before? <laughs> Hello? And look into the alien's eyes? Um, or um, tell me about the little graves that took you aboard the ship. If yeah. the person, if that's a screen memory for child abuse, which many of these are, if that's a screen memory for child abuse, 
that psychologist, that regression therapist has just validated the screen memory. Now it's a real memory because it's right. under hypnosis. Well, Bill, isn't a lot of uh, in a lot of the regression stuff? I mean, despite the leading the leading forms of questioning that that often goes on, and the fact that a lot of these people shouldn't be regressed at all, uh, considering that uh, you know every psychologist I've talked to has said you know that that should only be used in the most extremely specific um, areas that you can think of. But what about the whole issue of cultural contamination? I mean, everybody pretty much these days knows the typical alien abduction scenario. Um, you know, and, and let's face facts. You know, if you're going to uh, Bud Hopkins to be regressed, you know why you're going. It's not like you're ignorant of everything and you just decide to go to Bud Hopkins for this, you know. Um, I mean, that's more well, of the problem comes in with that, you know, is, is that there's so much out in the media right now about this scenario. And then you think, well, I had missing time for three or four hours. Maybe that happened to me. And immediately, you know, you're kind of feeding into that by going for a regression. I mean, isn't that how... Um, uh, I, I, I mean, to me, I'm asking you if your opinion is, is, is that not how we ran into this huge brick wall in the 90s where everybody's brother was getting regression hypnotherapy done? Well, I think you're absolutely right, I, and I think it's an excellent question. It's a question that goes far deeper because really what you come to is um, it's, the, it, it's the same thing that um, the existentialist playwright Jean-Paul Sartre wrote when he said that uh, a person has misgivings or wants to know if he should join the army. Well, if the person goes to a recruiting sergeant, guess what the person is going to hear? If the person goes to a priest, guess what the person is going to hear? So the choice you make almost predetermines the answer you're going to get. So that's what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's very existential. The, uh, the, um, so if you say, gee, I don't know what happened. I'm going to go to um, a hypnotic regression um, alien abduction session. Well, guess what? You're going to find out exactly what you know in advance you're going to hear. Right, exactly, exactly. And that, you know, unfortunately, that is kind of like set the tune as far as I think the public's perception of abduction or experiencers. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm looking at, um, I looked at a lot of cases back to 10, 12 years ago, and I wasn't getting much, if any, of the the typical scenario from people who just recall things outright. Like you said, they're very different animals in a way. Um, I I got a lot more bizarre stuff than, you know, than uh, ovum and semen, you know, extraction and and that kind of thing. I got some very bizarre stuff uh, kind of akin to what I've experienced myself. So I'm kind of looking at this whole thing under the aspect of... um, that, uh, that, well, I'll say it, the Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs of the world have kind of, um, I, I don't know, almost polluted the pool to a certain degree for me because I think that a lot of what they got was probably not real accurate information uh, based on regression well, therapy. You know? Okay, here's an example. So um, I recently saw a regression tape in which there were a bunch of us evaluating this. And the person on the tape says, um, so the therapist says, what do the aliens look like? Well, thank you for that, right? Um, and he says, well, he says, it's really just like 
He said, this is like life imitating art. It's what you see in the movies. It's life imitating art. And you, you stop and you say, wait a minute. That, that's, that to me, you know, my red flag went off immediately. Because I said, because first of all, life imitating art, I know how the image of the gray on the Whitley Strieber communion got to be. I know that because Whitley Strieber even said, and Bud Hopkins has written about this, that um, that was an artist for the cover wanted to do a certain kind of a look. So the artist did it. Whitley strenuously objected to it. And Whitley and I are friends. We're both the same publisher, same editor, right? And you know him, Jeremy. So um, uh, Whitley objected to it. So that's not what I said. I said, well, that's what the publisher wants. Well, you know that you have no control over book covers. That's the, that is the prerogative of the publishing company. So that's it. That became the, uh, so when people say, oh, just like communion. Well, I know for a fact, that's not the E.T. that Whitley Strieber saw. That was an artist mock-up. The big-headed alien. Yes, Betty Hill, Betty Hill, Betty Hill. Okay, yes, fine. But the big-headed alien was invented in the art world by Ming Chang, who was the original director, the original props designer for Star Trek, the original series, TOS. And um, he invented the flip phone. He invented the flip communicator. He invented the phaser. Gorn, the reptilian. Thank you, David Ick. Right. Huh. So um, he invented that. He invented Gorn, the, uh, the reptoid, out of a skin diving suit. Um, well, Waming Chang invented the big-headed alien both for Outer Limits and for one of the first episodes of the original series, Daylock. Okay? Oh. Now, wow. that's what Betty, and this is 1963, four. Betty Hill, oh, and, and wait a minute, stop the music. He, um, in 1963, in the original pilot for Star Trek, which was later called The Glass Menagerie, who is Captain Pike, played by Jeffrey Hunter, captured by small, diminutive, big-headed aliens. Right. And the prop director for that, again, I think might have been Mua Ming Chang, and he described to me that he had the actors, who were all women, by the way, he had the actors hold a rubber squeegee. And when they were talking and thinking, telepathically, of course, the, I mean, listen to this, telepathic thought projection, they had to squeeze the squeegee so the veins behind the rubber big head <laughs> would move back and forth. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, so this stuff is in the cultural matrix um, in 62, 63. Uh, now, right, so, so, so what can I tell you? When this person said, oh, it was life imitating art, I'm saying I know every designer of that big head, uh -huh. everyone. So sure it was art. So how do you know about the big heads? I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then how, okay, so then <laughs> let's back up a second. How do you 
put put that against saying you believe abductions represent something real. What what do you think? What is what does real mean to you at that point? Okay, well, let's take even a step further back. Uh, well, if you if you if you know for a fact, if you shake the hand of the inventor of the big headed alien, okay, Wang Chang, and you see that alien from the Glass Menagerie, it was called the Glass Menagerie when it was cut into two episodes for the original series. And um, so when you see the, the um, I used to write for Star Trek, so when you see the, um, the um, when you see that, and you know where that came from, then you look at other descriptions of aliens. Let's just take two. One is by um, Marion Magruder, who was in the Air for, who was in the Air, National Air War College in 1947. Who was by his own story. Again, I have no, just I believe him. Um, who was flown to Wright Field, where he saw the alien in a chamber, Wright Field, and he says the reason they flew me there was not because I'm some great guy who was, you know, and I could, we all know the stories of I was in high school and I was fighting aliens in outer space, right? I mean, you've all heard those. Um, they took a, a class there for this basic reason. They didn't know what they wanted to do with this alien. Should they release the information? Should they deep six it? What do we do with the alien? And he describes the alien. He describes the alien as, you ready for this? Totally human looking. The head was slightly larger, not the big bulbous head from Star Trek, but slightly larger. It was not gray. It was pink. He knew that it was strange because the arms were very spindly and elongated, and he called it, and it glommed onto the name squiggly because of the way it moved. Hmm. Now, when I hear that from an abductee, I get nervous because that was only in one place. That was the article in UFO magazine. Um, the other person is, um, two other people, Dan Dwyer, who was Frankie Rose's father at Roswell. And I'm criticized, by the way, in UFO hunters, very heavily criticized. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And it's by way of a digression. Uh, this guy, Dan Dwyer, described it as a pink face. And the head was bigger than, than, than normal. And it looked like an insect called the child of the earth, which is a human-looking insect. And you could see a version of that human-looking insect in the outer limit show the Zanti. Now, Dan Dwyer died. Uh, he never, I don't think he even saw that episode of, of, of Outer Limits. But there is a, an insect called the Child of the Earth, and it is a small, it is a large insect with a human-looking face. And that's what he described. And that was Dan Dwyer. Uh, Alpha Boyd's father uh, described that he was, the, he was the maintenance man at the 509th. Uh, at Walker Field, and he described it because he saw it being brought in from the desert, and he described it as um, just a childlike figure, uh, but had strange eyes and a strange shaped head, and you knew it wasn't human when you looked at it, and that was the most frightening thing about it. So I've got three good descriptions from people all dead, but three but three good descriptions that correlate. I believe those descriptions more than I believe the big head. Huh. Now, why do I go back to Roswell for these things? You haven't, and you answer, you should be screaming, Bill, haven't you beaten Roswell to death day after Roswell, witness <laughs> to Roswell? 
so, 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 I mean, Roswell this, Roswell that, Roswell this, Roswell. Well, I, UFO stuff, um, since it's been so clouded over with myth and lore, um, like a serial killer case, believe it or not, when you're trying to track a serial killer case, and again, I kind of know this because I do this for, I did this with the Department of Justice. When you're trying to track a serial killer case, where do you go? In some cases, you will go to the, and we do it on UFO hunters, which is so funny, but I can't say it on camera. Um, you go to the freshest case, obviously, because the clues haven't dried up. We do it on UFO hunters. Go to Stephenville. It's an ongoing case. Or you go to the first case. Why? Because the first case in a serial killer case generally contains all the evidence that a more experienced serial killer will cover up. So in Roswell, it began without a cover-up. The witnesses are still there in some cases. And um, there's a lot more evidence that's come up. So that's why you go back to Roswell. It's kind of the benchmark for a UFO abduction case. They don't like me to talk about serial killers on the show, but that's one of the reasons you do that. No, so what is it that they criticize you about? Well, don't bring serial killers in. And you talk about Roswell too much. You're, you're, you're hyping your own book. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. Roswell is, Roswell is a very, very important case because it's the first. Right. Kenneth Arnold, Roswell, the first cases. There was little cover-up until much later. So the evidence is really laid out there in a very dramatic way. So, okay, I'm you're blowing my mind here, Bill. Uh, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. So are you saying that, that are, are, there are several things going on with abductions? One is that they're screen memories for childhood sexual abuse. Another is is that... that That's the majority. Right, okay. And then there's another that is sort of delusions based on cultural images, right? But then there's another that is this real thing. Is that real thing also being covered over by the cultural image? Or is that real thing only indicated by, um, for instance, the, the small childlike being or, you know, things that you wouldn't have seen um, in in pop culture but, but actually are the real deal if you know how to look i think there's a danger in the real thing i just missed the others i think that the real danger is that the um that the pop culture tends to influence the real memories so what you want to do is really get the person talking about the real memories i believe alien abductions are real um i tend to you know i'm a big um i'm really um an enthusiast of the research going on on, this, on Lloyd Pye's Star Child, and I believe this. I've, I've actually held a skull in my hand, which is a, you know, holding a 900-year-old skull in your hand. Oh, Bill, it's deformed. Look at this. It's not deformed. I spoke to a neonatal nurse about that. She said, "I look at. Oh, she's the owner of the skull. She said, I see deformed children every day. Um, that's my job." and that's not deformed, and, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's not deformed, and you hold the actual skull, not the picture, but the actual skull, in your hand, and you see all these aspects to it that, I mean, I know a lot of it because I know what hydroencephaly is, I know what spotamuthina is, I know a lot of birth deformities and birth defects that uh, you don't have an asymmetrical skull with those kinds of birth defects. You don't have eyes that low in the sockets that low, sockets that shallow, a neck that's too narrow 
to support what's obviously a larger brain. How do you know it's a larger brain? Well, we took the real skull, and we took the adult skull from the skeleton that accompanied the star child, the cave, and filled, I'll just tell you what we did, we filled it up with material, and the um, star child skull had more brain capacity, more brain matter, hmm. which Lloyd Pye's already done, so I'm not blowing the secret. And um, so Lloyd Pye's experiments show that there was about one-third more brain matter in the star child skull. Well, how can a thinner neck, a tighter connection, support a brain 30% heavier than an adult human brain? What's it made out of? What's the cerebellum like? And why is the skull parsed into three separate sections? What's the answer? Well, I think David Jacobs is closer to the answer. Now, Lloyd Pye says that the skull had mitochondrial DNA. Uh, the skull, the mitochondrial DNA is totally human. Was the skull in the cave accompanying it human? No. Lloyd Pye says that the skull in the cave with this entity was not its mother and was from a different haplogroup, Mesoamerican haplogroup. So this is really compelling to me. What, tell me please, is that entity doing with that adult um, indigenous person, Native American in Mexico, 900 years ago? Uh, then go to the crime scene. What's the death scene? The adult died in the cave alongside this entity that was buried, but the arm came out of the grave, you know, I keep my grave open, the arm came out of the grave and was wrapped around the adult's hand. What does that mean? Well, I think what we're looking at, okay, so the mitochondrial DNA is from a female, haplogroup A. Um, what's the mitochondria? When a sperm fertilizes an egg, right, you know, childhood sex talk 101, when a sperm fertilizes an egg, the male chromosomes penetrate right to the nucleus of the egg. That's what starts mitosis, right? The splitting of the egg. Um, but the mitochondrial DNA stays. That's the mother. The mother is the mitochondrial DNA. The father is in the nucleus. So when Lloyd Pye went to the nucleus to test it, Lloyd could not find the father. Who's your daddy? Where is it, Mr. Fung? So that's part of the problem. That's why he's getting the genome sequence, which is an expensive proposition, which should tell us more about what the um, male part of that is. What are we going to find out? I don't know. Is it something that the DNA test for the nucleus failed and now we'll find a regular male? Or will we find something else? And here's where we go to Lloyd. And here's where you say, well, why is that little entity holding the mother's arm or, or holding a woman's arm. I don't know. Is that entity in that tribe? Is that entity in that group? Uh, you know, you just don't know. But clearly there was a familiarity between the two. Why would the mother, it had to be the mother, put the arm around, put the alien, the, um, I'm not calling it, the entity's arm around itself. David Jacob has a theory 
which is that we are being hybridized. It's not, you know, um, you know, Al the alien comes down, beams up, you know, um, um, Ellen abductee, and you know, basically draws her, fertilizes her, um, redresses her badly, sends her back in the middle of the um, of um, you know the Hudson County Mall, um, and uh, she has missing time for uh, for four hours. Goes to um, an alien abduction regression therapist finds out she was abducted. They were inseminating her with something, and has to now adjust to that. No, no. Um, David Jacobs has a different theory that it's not the alien itself that's doing the um, interbreeding. It is a hybrid. They are hybridizing out the alien features, but keeping and making it look more human. Now, that's a much more sinister, menacing thing. Why are they doing that? Are they taking over? Is that the end point? And you'd say, well, gee, why don't you just come down and take over? Why? Why do that? What a waste of time. Yeah, but if, 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 if you've got this Indian, um, you, you've, this Indian, if you've got this, uh, this hybrid 900 years ago, um, how, you know, how long does it take an advanced civilization who already has mastered these things, presumably, to already have just killed us off that way? How do you know they've mastered it? And how do you... I mean, they're doing it. That doesn't mean they've mastered it. How do you know, like, Dolly the sheep, things go dramatically wrong, right? They could have been experimenting for, for, for a million years. And things go dramatically wrong. Um, the cloning doesn't work. The, all kinds of things go wrong. They, uh, they pick the wrong subjects. Why do you think they abduct so many people? They want the right subjects. Best people for cloning. Um, so, no, that doesn't discount it. Um, but see, when, you, when you bring up David Jacobs, I automatically go right back to, well, he is one of those guys. He's the poster child for a hypnotherapist that you go to uh, with a predisposition toward his theory or else. He only deals in his own theory or else he will not even take you as a client. So, um, which came first? Yeah, but David Jacobs admits that his theory has changed. He admits when you when you hear him and talk to him that he is on the same kind of a quest a lot of people are. And he said he was thinking one thing, then he thought another, then it struck him from the photo, from the drawing that people did, the automatic writing they did, that hey, wait a minute, why are hybrids playing with kids? It was like summer camp for aliens. No, they're the ones that are doing the training. My problem is not with David Jacobs, who I really respect. My problem is with, is with people who glom onto that and build the popularized David Jacobs into their stories. That's my problem, and that's the danger of David Jacobs. Well, you know, I have another problem, which is why is it that, you know, Jeff Ritzman has some bit of evidence and, you know, men in black come and visit him, but Lloyd Pye's got an alien skull and he's running around every show on Earth and, and he gets <laughs> nothing. Fascinating. Um, there may be some very mundane answers to that. Mundane answer one, Lloyd Pye's in the public. He's out there. He's been talking about, he wrote a book. He's out there. He's financed. He has money. I've seen the skull. I've seen the skull. I've held the skull. I put my hand inside the skull and put my hand inside another human skull. And the inside of that skull is different. Is it a total hoax? Don't think so. 
I've seen the report. I've read the medical reports. I've read the scientific reports. Um, on West Lloyd has spent a lot of money around um, to a lot of scientists who've basically done what he told them. Um, it's real. Now, what is the reality of it? I don't know. But, um, but he's out there. He's walking around with the skull. What are the men in black going to say? Give us the skull? He's not giving <laughs> up the men in black. Fox and Kitty. Jeff Ritzman, Jeff, you are not on the cover of Time magazine. You're not on TV every moment. Thank um, God. <laughs> and maybe, well, if I have my way, you will be. But if, <laughs> if, if, if the evidence is, which I do want to get out there on TV, on UFO Hunters, if the evidence, if the trace evidence is out there, um, and you know, the men in black are going to go away. Why? Because they're not going to stop you once you're out in daylight. They stop you in the night, not in the day. I just, I guess it's like, well, why bother even stopping people in the night if the guy in the day actually has a skull? I mean, that's pretty much end game. All but he has to do is prove that, that skull can, is not human, and there you go. So fine. So, so the skull is not human. Um, I could take you to, or uh, you know, uh, we all know the cases. This a dramatic UFO case, and it's debunked. How is it debunked? Because on facts, no, it's debunked by shouting it down. And that's one of the problems that, you know, the, I know this is big, that the old-time UFO researchers, the researchers, the new UFO researchers, you know, you're all the same, but um, that's the kind of thing that Stanton Friedman talks about. And he's right. They don't have to hit you with facts. Okay, it's the, it's the thing you learn in law school. Here's what you learn in law school. When you go into court, you pound the facts if the facts support you. If the facts don't support you, you pound the law. If the law doesn't support you and the facts don't support you, you pound the table. Well, that's what debunkers do. They pound the table. They don't have facts. They don't have scientific law. Pound the table. Pound the loud enough. Somebody's going to believe you. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of pound the table, um, do, you, do you see anything in... in Disclosure, it seems like everywhere I turn, I'm seeing uh, how there's this huge UFO wave going on, huge UFO wave, and the U.S. has to come out. They just have to come out and disclose, disclose, disclose. Is there anything that you see through your travels or even with, you know, talking to your, I guess they would be informants, I don't know what they would be, your black ops friends, that indicates to you that disclosure is a possibility in the near future? No, there's nothing on the horizon with that. I disagree um, Stephen and I have a gentle disagreement. Stephen Bassett and I have a gentle disagreement about it. Well, you were there. You, 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 you heard the conversation. We have a gentle disagreement about it. I go back to the one theory. Why would government do something it doesn't have to do? That's A. That's just basic uh, a bureaucracy. They don't have to disclose, so why disclose? Oh, Stephen says it'll clear the national psyche. It'll bring us back to the and Bull. The national psyche has been so distorted over the past hundred years, why bother? You know, who cares? The national psyche. You know, what you care about is paying your mortgage, paying your rent. Um, national psyche, come on. Um, it's not going to end the war in Iraq. It's not going to make us beloved by the Ayatollahs. I mean, come on. And Jimmy Carter thought that one of our, our worst presidents, Jimmy Carter thought that. Jimmy Carter thought, if I just declare a national amnesty for Vietnam, 
the North Vietnamese who are holding, this is 1976, the North Vietnamese who are holding American POWs in Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos will release them because they're all declaring an amnesty together. We'll all be brothers with our hands across the sea. They said to him, what are you, crazy? We want the $30 billion or we're keeping your flyers. Big deal. So, I mean, that's what I think about national psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my thought is that that's not going to do a thing. If there is going to be disclosure, it'll be disclosure by default, unless the government feels it needs it. Well, what do you think? What do you think they're going to have to say if if Lloyd Pye's skull ends up being real? Won't they have to say something? Won't that change everything? They will say what David Pritchard told me in one of our episodes at MIT a year ago. He said, "Well." about Betty and Barney Hill. They fit the edge of the statistical reality. What does that mean? That fits the edge of the statistical curve. Tell me what that means, because I don't know. I looked at him, I said, are, are you hitting me with um, a standard deviation, right? Or, or, are you talking statistics? People came down either through time or not from this planet, took her, she came back with real trace evidence, mental trace evidence and physical trace evidence. Stains on the dress, where they, she said their hands were, a memory of a star that nobody knew existed, and a, and a knowledge of a medical procedure that was 15 years away, 10 years away, amniocentesis. Explain that. And he couldn't. So... My point is that's what debunkers will try to do. Oh, it fits in the realm of statistical anomaly. It really is a strange birth defect, or as one person told me the other day, nature is an amazing creature. She can do miracles. Thanks. Tell me why the brain has to be told. Well, I think as far as the star child skull goes, I mean, as far as I know, and I've read some about it, I haven't read everything about it, but, I mean, I don't think they've ruled out, like, cradle boarding on hydrocephalic children uh, or Crouton syndrome. I mean, have they ruled that out? Cradle boarding. Let's start with cradle boarding. Cradle boarding is something that Mesoamericans did, and Indians did, except the problem with cradle boarding on their skull is the cradle boarding goes too far down. Cradleboarding was higher up on the back of the head. It didn't go all the way down to the neck. That's the problem with cradleboarding. Hydroencephaly. For hydroencephaly to have occurred on the skull, babies have two fontanel spots, right? Forward and then further back. What hydroencephaly does is break apart, they're called sutures, on the bone to create gaps. That's hydroencephaly. Okay? No gaps. The sutures are perfectly formed. No hydroids. And, 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 and Jeff, it's 900 years ago. This right. is not a baby that was found in a cave. Its teeth were worn down from eating corn grits. Mm-hmm. Corn wore down its tooth. It's not a 5-year-old child. It might be a 10-year-old child. might be a 15-year-old child. might be 50 years old. Our earth years. We don't know. No molars, no teeth under the jaw, okay? No chewing muscles. Mandible is is, is underformed. 
It's 900 years ago, Jeff. Uh Would this entity have lived past a week? No. (laughs) Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Where's the shot? I'm also looking at, like, when when they're talking about the the DNA profile taken off this thing, that it was a mixture of at least three people, which means it was contaminated. See, that's 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 the other thing that, that I'm looking at here. It says the results indicate there's been a severe contamination of the specimen by DNA originating from several people, which means, right. you know, we got a problem. Uh, yeah, it's a big problem yeah. on the first DNA test. Right. There were like five different tests. The uh-huh. mitochondrial DNA was um, haplogroup A, and that was not contaminated. Okay, yeah, because it doesn't break down well, as easily, right. I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, the last, and the last test, by the way, that they did was to remove the contaminating elements, which were other things. They removed them by, in the extraction. Then, they, then on the final little bit they got, it was a tiny bit, they used the PCR, which is what we use in our court now, PCR to duplicate the little bit they got. So they did a really good, thorough job on that last DNA test. Um, and the, uh, I, how did that all differ from, from, uh, was it the University of British Columbia? Uh, I'm trying to think, um, the DNA sample taken from the skull, uh, Dr. David Sweet, I found his name, that's who I was looking for, Director of Bureau of mm-hmm. Legal Dentistry at the University of British Columbia, said the starch yeah, off you- DNA was, was found to contain both an X and Y chromosome, which is like kind of conclusive evidence that it was a child, was not only human, but male, they said. Um, but both of his parents must have been human as well for each to have contributed one of the human sex chromosomes. So, I mean, what do we say to that? But they can't identify the source of the, of the uh, Y chromosome. That's okay. the problem. Okay. That's hmm. what he wanted to do, was identify the source of the Y chromosome. You know, mm-hmm. sure, there's a father in there somewhere, right? Who's your daddy? But right. they can't find the daddy because they can't find the source of that Y chromosome. That's why um, Lloyd is doing the um, genome recovery. That should mm-hmm. give the source of that chromosome. Well, so when should we find that out? Probably by the end of this year. Okay. All right. We can wait. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've got time. I mean, if they, look, if, if it's a normal human being that was just born that way... I'll live with that. I mean, I'm not going to cry. Right. I wish it was something else, but I mean, it's a it's a genome test. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's what you got to do. Get the genome. No, you're not going to cry because you've got UFO hunters. But Lloyd Pye, I mean, he's going to have to like go get a day job or something. <laughs> a, a, a Lloyd Pye will write a book about the tests and what they found, and 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 and, and you see, I mean, a, a person writing that. Is not going to necessarily write about the fact that I failed. I'm 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 cutting my throat. I'm a big loser. Remember, Lloyd <laughs> Pye wrote a very successful book called Everything You Know Is Wrong. So um, now Lloyd's going to write about the journey of the star child, what he learned, what it told him, and it'll be a fabulous book. He's a good writer. Well, I I look forward to you ghostwriting that for him. <laughs> I mean, I look forward to the book by the end of nothing. Look, Lloyd. <laughs> All right. Actually, I mean, Lloyd. The internet. No, no. Lloyd Pye goes on the internet, right? So he's on the show. I'll reveal that he was a guest. So he's on the show, and um, he writes on the internet because it's already public now because it was on the internet. So I'm not really breaking a, uh, a taboo. I, I'm not supposed to name guests, but Lloyd wrote it on the internet, put it on the internet on his website, and he said, "I'm going to be on UFO Hunters. 
in an episode, and um, the producer of that episode, who I remonstrated with about this, said, you wrote the best book in ufology. Well, I have issues with that, I must say. And um, so I said, Lloyd, did you really write the best book in ufology? Look me in the eye and tell me. How many copies did you sell? Well, I sold their copies. I said, now, would you say the New York Times bestseller that sold close to a million copies? And he said, you're right, you're right, it's the second best book. I said, well, Stanton <laughs> Friedman's going to have an issue with you and so will Whitley Strieber. But you know, it's a joke, we're joking, but the point is that um, Whitley, uh, it was a lawyer, uh, talked about it. But his book is a good book. Um, Everything You Know is Wrong with Star Child Skull is a good book. And... Um, he knows the producer was bettering him up. You know, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I interviewed Lloyd Pye when I did the Book of Toth podcast. He seemed like a nice enough guy. And I, I, I like the fact that his story mimics his uh, childhood story of, of having seen this alleged captured Bigfoot creature at some sort of carnival, and, and that sort of changed his life, and then found out that it was all a giant hoax of some sort. And it, it, it just struck me that like the, the story that he told about that Bigfoot mirrored Yes. Exactly what he's doing with the Star Child skull, except that he's telling the truth, or at least, you know, he believes his story. Yes. And, and then you see the, uh, the, uh, the big point behind Lloyd Pye, which is not that, oh, um, Bigfoot must be real if it's not, you know, Bigfoot must be real. This way. No, the big story is that Lloyd Pye is looking for alternative history. That's what he's looking for. That's a good thing. We like that. Mm hmm. Well, I guess I have one last question for you, Bill, and then you get to go to bed. Um, do you, when you're looking at all of these abduction accounts, um, is there anything that, that, that is more attractive to you as real uh, in terms of, like, the straightforward narrative or the high strangeness? Do either one of those smack you as more real than the other, or are they both equally plausible? Well, a straightforward narrative told by somebody who's trying to sell me something really bothers me. Okay? Really bothers me. I mean, I'm selling you a story. Uh, here's my story. I spoke to one of the people that we spoke to last year, or was it last year? Was it I spoke to for the uh, Phoenix Lights issue that we did, um, you know, featuring the world-renowned singer, Dr. Lin Kitai. Um <laughs> Uh, who's really a sweetie pie. I mean, she was great. She did. She was on a Phoenix Lights episode. She was fantastic. I, I love her. She's great. And she's funny. But, um, so... Oh, she's funny. <laughs> no, she is. She's, yes, she's definitely funny. But, but, but see, see, here's why I take her seriously. Mm. Like a lot of witnesses, she's driven to tell the truth. And every time there's a phony explanation... She does go bonkers, and she just tries to debunk the debunker. And I like that. I mean, that's great. That's what you want. She doesn't just argue. Anybody can pound the table. You don't need a medical degree to do that. But what she does is she says no, and here are the reasons. It's like Lin Kitai is almost the Rachel Maddow of ufology because she is... Um, she has her facts straight, and she's going to hit you with the facts. So if you're going to argue with her, no, you've got fact-checking to do. I mean, she forced the National Guard to drop more flares to show that it was flares. And then she debunked the flares. Great. That's great. Um, I take 
I'm bothered by people trying to sell me a story, and, right, uh, about abduction. Because what I learned from Ruth Hoover in Phoenix, good friend of Linky Ties, Dr. Lynn, is that the real, the real abductees are very, very cautious about what they say. They're very cautious. I mean, Jeff Ritzman, you're not going to um, sell your story. You're just not going to do it. It's not too until my book's too... done. <laughs> what? Not until my book is done. <laughs> okay, well... Which may but, be but never. Not... <laughs> right, okay, but, but you're not out there to push your story to other people. It's a private story. It may be a book, but the book is a private memoir. Yeah. Um, Ruth, that's what Ruth Hover described. That's her support group. She doesn't know who's telling the truth and who's not, who's delusional, who's not, who's psychotic, who's not. But what she knows is that um, real serious people about this don't go out on the street and make um, my hypnosis tapes one through three. You can buy them all for forty nine ninety nine. That would be Jim Sparks. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, sir, for rescuing us. Yes, thanks uh, very much, Bill. And- uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll talk to you soon. The opinions expressed today on Paratopia by Bill Burns are his own <laughs> and do not reflect the host of Paratopia, Jeff Ritzman, or Jeremy Vaney, or the island of Paratopia. Please refer to your user manual for all other pertinent questions. We, we could have argued Lin Katai, uh you know, into the ground. I, 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 I like Bill. Yeah, I, I like Bill a lot. You know, and, um, uh, hey, I, I can, I can, you know, he, he's got his own opinions about this stuff, and I got mine, and that's that's okay. You know, I felt like the only thing missing from today's show was discussion of the Meyer case, which we'll do later. But uh, uh, we'll we'll get to that in a bit, actually. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know what I disagree with I, I know that you disagree with a lot because i i do think that roswell happened and i know that you think that roswell didn't happen so anything on roswell is fine by me i don't, I don't think i don't think it didn't happen i think that uh, uh i think that it's too far gone essentially to worry about at this point i mean let's let's move things along a little bit but uh, you know what happened there i don't know but um uh, I have my doubts that it was anything of a extraterrestrial nature. If it was, it may have been the first uh, of its kind, which is great. But I, I, I think it's sorely lacking myself. That's just me. Um, but, uh, but you know, as far as Lloyd Pye and this, I, I no, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, um, I don't even want to comment on it because I just don't. No, I don't. I don't buy it. Well, okay, um, let me ask you this. You know, more tests, got, more tests have to get done on that thing before anybody starts calling it a star child, for one. Right, but do you buy that Lloyd Pye is uh, sincere in what he's doing? Well, I suppose. I mean, it, it's... Uh, uh, you just think he's wrong? I don't know anything. Uh, I mean, what test I've seen come back, say, you know, uh, male... You know, uh, a, a definite uh, X and Y chromosome, uh, which, by the report I just read online, just said that both the X and Y were human, regardless of anything that comes out of it. I mean, I think, 
uh, I think this has a problem, and it's just like every other problem with this stuff is that when you've got uh, the purveyor of any kind of evidence doing the analysis or reporting the analysis, we've got a problem. Uh, this stuff has got to be third-party done, or I can't just take that at face value coming from him. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I'm sure he's a very nice man uh, in a personal way, but I've, you know, I mean, does anybody listen to the Paracast? It's a great show. Um, I mean, I think there were a lot of issues brought up on that show with him that never really got answered, and, uh, 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 you know, I, I mean, I admire his fortitude for sticking with it, but uh, there's just just a lot of things that that seem to point to this being something unusual, sure, but not alien, and, and I got a problem with that. Um, so, I mean, as far as Dr. Kitai goes, I mean, again, I'm sure Bill's right. I'm sure she's got all her ducks in a row, but unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, I, I think I think. That uh, if and if I'm wrong, somebody out there in in uh, internet land correct me. This woman still believes that the flare drop uh, over at uh, Goldwater Range was alien. Or well, that's what he said. Work. That he she forced them to redrop the flares, and then she debunked that 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 was a flare drop. And you know, to me, it's like uh, that's that's one issue. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's one issue. The other issue is that. She is um, an actress, you know, and um, and and I know her type. <laughs> okay. Hell, my sister's her type. You know, I've lived around that type, and and she needs to be the center of everything. And so, you know, this thing happens in Phoenix. She sees it out her window, and so it, it revolves around her. Like her entire story yeah. is all about I I made this happen. You know, right? Uh, I don't know how many of the sightings she claims to have made happen, but. You know, they basically happened in response to her thinking about it. You know, it's like... Right. Um, so that, to me, rings untrue. Now, do I think that she... Do I do I think that she believes what she's doing? Well, I, I guess, and, you know, and, and if she really is, um, you know, forcing or whatever the National Guard to, to drop flares to test it out and all that stuff. But it's all in service to herself. It's not in service to the truth of this uh, case. Right. Right. I mean, so I, I have that problem with her. <laughs> I mean, I, I called the Maryland National Guard not not horribly long ago, and I asked them about uh, the, this whole thing, you know. And he's like, "Oh, you're calling about the UFO thing, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah, they were flares. Um, we dropped them. Uh, go, you know, Goldwater Range, just that and the other." And and I mean, you know, for anybody out there that still believes that the that the that the the enormous I guess kind of bent U or soft V type formation that was uh, that was seen by people in Phoenix at that uh, at that late hour. Now the earlier thing is it, to me is a completely different matter. Uh, obviously, something structured flew over the area and and took its sweet time about doing it. Um, uh, e, as far as the later thing went, where everybody's got the videos of that. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of things going on there where people are saying, well, it was a very strange light. You know, it was very strange. Well, when you're talking about a, a range that's 70 miles away, I mean, everybody wants to say this thing was hovering over Phoenix. These these lights were over Phoenix. They were not over Phoenix. 
they were beyond the mountain range that you're looking at in that scene where they're shooting from uh, high up in in a on, on a flat top in in uh, in Phoenix. You're seeing them drop seventy miles away. And for anybody who does anything with telescopes, you'll know what scintillation means. Uh, that's the the heat coming off the Earth. That's going to make uh, any light seem uh, brighter and dimmer. It's going to twinkle. It's going to look very bizarre. They can move from scintillation. Uh, stars can move from scintillation. Uh, and you're looking at heat waves. Uh, this is Phoenix. Okay, so. We're talking about significant scintillation when you're when you're getting that low on the horizon in Phoenix, uh, and there is, um, uh, I believe, it's a History Channel. So another plug for Bill's network there. Um, uh, that they took these, um, uh, they took one of the shooters' video of that particular uh, event, the flare drop event. And uh, he superimposed that over top of daylight footage from the exact same vantage point, matching up all of the stationary objects in in frame. And as they, quote-unquote, winked out, as everyone said, they were actually dropping behind the mountain. This was 100% visible. And anytime I hear somebody say, I say, do you watch the History Channel? Have you not seen this a billion times? Because it's been on incessantly for probably the past few months. Um, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and if that's the kind of thing that she's saying is something otherworldly, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And uh, and, and any History Channel documentary uh, on there about that that shows that... We, should, we should call Bill back and ask him... Hey, don't you watch the show that's on before or after your... Uh, well, I mean, I think that's when I actually saw it the first time. I was like, oh, wow, look at that. There it is. Maccabee came up with the same answer. He he detailed it long before I saw it on History Channel. I mean, it's just to me, it's just absurd. And again, I can't... Um, I can't deny... Uh, and Bill says, you know, whenever someone's trying to sell an abduction story... Well, I can say the same for sighting stories, too. Because I think when she was on your show, she talked about uh, going all over the country and, and some... Did she say she went around the world telling this story or, or lecturing um, about this? I don't remember. I don't remember either, but sense. I remember that she had been to a lot of things and she had been asked to speak at a lot of things. And, uh, you know, and nobody travels for free. Uh, I'm not saying she's making her living off of it, but... Let's face it, you know, she I think uh I think she has sold some materials about this. Um so I mean, well yeah, she claims that I, I, it was either the book or the DVD is like one of the hottest selling items on Amazon. Well, there you go. I mean, so there's not a there's not a an a vested interest in that being something otherworldly. Please. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you know, when you're, when you're selling this thing like that and you're going around doing lectures and you don't lecture for free and you don't travel or live in a hotel for free just because you believe so strongly, unless you're independently wealthy. Um, but I don't you, think Bill would disagree with that. I don't think he's arguing the point. No, no, I don't think so either. No, I'm just saying. a little angry, Jeff. It's just, it's you all right, buddy. You shit need, like that. Just you want to get a water? You want to take a time out? <laughs> shit like that just <laughs> aggravates the hell out of me. Um, because I mean, you've got you've got good stuff out there that that just uh, 
you know, th- this is the kind of stuff that network TV goes after to put on uh, on a show. And it's like, man, you know, there's so many other better things out there uh, to focus on rather than this. This has been pretty thoroughly explained, except for that earlier sighting in Phoenix, um, to which there's only one surviving video of, which is, is not very good, unfortunately. But you've got separate testimony from all sorts of people. Now, to me, in all likelihood, it could have been something military that was having issues. Um, uh, it, it could have been anything at that point. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I mean, See, when, it, when it comes to this kind of stuff, that's where I get real pissed off real fast because I can't, uh, I can't abide people like her that, that are basically taking a leak in the pool after it's been swept. <laughs> you know? I feel like we need to justify when you say it could have been some sort of military craft or something gone awry, why you think that. Uh, okay. Because you've said this about the Stevensville sighting too, that you know maybe we have maybe. mile-long triangle craft. Maybe. Maybe these triangle craft are ours. And I don't think there's any reference point for people out there why you think that. So... Why don't you please tell us the story now? Well, okay. Not like this is going to be concrete proof for anybody unless, you know, that... Unless you're just one of those people who says, I believe everything he says. But here it is. This is this is what my wife and I saw. Um, I used to go to MUFON meetings many years ago. Um, and in that group, uh, if I... I'm pretty sure I've mentioned on the Paracast or your show uh, when we had the... And I took you this past weekend to show you where we saw the the manta ray-shaped thing or boomerang-shaped thing over my truck at one point. Um, when I had that sighting, I went to uh, MUFON and, uh, and I was telling the man who ran the meeting about it. And he said, well, I want you to explain this to the crowd um tonight if you don't mind and i said not at all and a man immediately jumped up and said yeah i know exactly what you saw um it's a tr3b or whatever it is and uh yeah they've been flying those for years they can stop they can hover they can shoot off like you said um what he couldn't explain was why it would be in the area that i took you to and why it would only show up after we started talking about me and my friends that saw it after we we started talking about um, the UFO slash alien enigma. Uh, he had no real good answer for that. Um, I don't personally believe what we saw that night was military. Uh, I just don't. Um, uh, later seeing his sketches of what a TR-3B looked like, it, it wasn't the right shape uh, or the right... Uh, I guess, angle of bend to have been that. But this man claimed to have been um, with a uh, a PSYOPs, um, I guess the Air Force has, and um, one night, some months after I relayed all that, he said, hey, I got something to show you. I said, okay. And we go out to his van. He's got a little portable black and white TV, and he's got a VCR, you know, hooked up and uh, uh, and 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 rigged into his dashboard lighter or something. I don't remember what the hell he played it on, but uh, yeah, he puts his tape in and he, he's showing me this. And, and what the scene was was 
uh, it looked like it was shot from the bleachers. Um, there was, uh, you could see people in front of whoever was shooting this. Uh, and then it went down onto like a, a tarmac runway. It, w it was uh, dark. Uh, there were floodlights lighting the tarmac. There was a hangar uh, to the left of frame. And there was a podium set up. And there was more than a few people in the stands. And uh, I don't know that he turned the sound up while whoever was giving the speech was giving it. But at that point, everybody stands up and the hangar opens, and you see a guy walking backwards, motioning this thing out of the hangar. Now, what was in the hangar was pointed, um, looked to be wedge-shaped, absolutely wedge-shaped, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, dark. I, I, I don't know if it was black or dark blue or whatever, but it was dark on this black and white TV, portable TV. And as he's backing out, you can tell it's going incredibly slow. And I'm like, man, this is really taking a long time to get out. Let's move this along. Well, what you notice is, is that the thing has no landing gear. And it's floating. And he pointed that out to us. Once it got all the way out uh, of the hangar, the man steps away with the two flashlights that look like, you know, short lightsabers. Um, he steps out of the way, and this thing goes up on its point, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 feet off the ground maybe, and turns. And when it turns, uh, and again, there's no crane visible in camera that I'm seeing, uh, but when it turns, the bottom of it, essentially lights up and starts streaming white little what looks like little white points of light moving that looks like space and stars and he immediately says that there that's that starlight camouflage and i said okay uh he said that'll project anything that is above the craft from a certain vantage point onto the bottom so which which renders it almost invisible um Lisa saw that outside of our condominium, again, probably 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, but she said it wasn't moving the lights like this thing in the video was. This, it, she said, obviously, it looked like it was malfunctioning because it was, it was just ticking lights here and there, boop, 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 all over. And then they would trail, and then it would tick again. It would trail. Um, so... This thing, I don't, I couldn't tell how big it was, but it was several of the man tall that was in frame. Um, so obviously we have stuff like this. Uh, I mean, uh, could there have been a crane off camera? I guess, but why would a guy be motioning it out with uh, with flashlights? I mean, that's what he showed us. And I said, please, can I get a copy of this tape? And his answer was to me, quote, not a chance. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how he came by it, but um, uh, it looked like it probably had been copied a couple of times. I don't know if it actually belonged to him or whether he shot it or whether he bought it at some convention from some guy. I don't know. Uh, but just from what I saw from the two times that we actually got to roll through it, it certainly looked legitimate to me. It didn't look faked. It didn't look 
you know, it was definitely a staged type presentation. So anytime I see stuff like, um, you know, like uh, people talking about mile-long crafts and stuff like that, and uh, I always go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that we don't have things like that. Um, I don't know what we have, but, um, you know, they always say, you know, what you what you're seeing now is from 20 years ago. The stealth bomber and these kind of things. This is 20 years ago we developed that thing. God knows what we've got now. So I'm real cautious about what do we have and the fact that we don't know what we have. Uh, I always love the 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 statement that uh, <laughs> that people say when they when they see something truly bizarre like that. Uh, uh, mile long craft. We just don't have anything like that. Well, you don't know what we have. Um, and, and people say, well, where would you put a mile long craft? Well, there's a lot of water around this planet, right? So if it can hover and it can float and it's a mile long, chances are it can probably go in the water too. Um, or just so, in a hangar. <laughs> I mean, if there's a hangar big enough for something like that, or, or do they disassemble it? Who the hell knows? I mean, the fact of the matter is we don't know what we have, and I'm good with that. Um, you know, we got enemies that we need to be able to defend against, uh, you know, and I'm glad that we have our fat tax dollars going to buy some fat damn weapons. So uh, I'm fine with, the, with there being craft like that. I would just really appreciate to know... Um, what we've got, and, uh, and and to be able to solidly define a sighting as ours or not. Um, I think the truly bizarre-looking things, like O'Hare, like um, uh, like some aspects of Gulf Breeze, I can look at that and go, you know, I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't think that we'd have something that weird-looking. Um, so... You know, that's kind of that's not not the total basis of the tape that I saw is not the total basis of why I would say I think that's military, but I kind of lean towards we probably have things like that that can do some bizarre man- maneuvers and can um, look kind of weird, but uh, I think there's I think it's almost easy to tell in certain cases that. I don't think we have something like this. Like uh, I mentioned to you, the Gulf Breeze footage of the small silver ball that literally leaves the frame in three frames, which is insanely... I mean, from a dead standstill to a blur. I can't see us having something like that. I don't know for sure, but odds are to me that we don't. Um, so, I, I think... And, and again, I mean... Uh, like the work Ted Phillips does with the the trace research stuff, I, I think he's a honorable guy. I think he's a hell of a researcher, and he's been at it a very long time. But I'm sure, and I can't speak for him, but I would hazard to guess that any trace evidence that he might find, I don't think he'd be so quick to jump that it's aliens doing this. I mean, you know... Uh, you you know what my outlook is on this stuff, and I think it's manifestative stuff. Um, 
can that leave traces? I don't know. Can it burn the ground? It might be able to burn the ground. Um, well, to that end, what what did you make of his um, sort of psychoanalysis of um, abductees in terms of cultural cues and that sort of thing? You know, this this guy, <laughs> this prop maker makes aliens, and then suddenly these aliens show up. Well, I don't think that's what they look like anyway, do you? I mean... Um, uh, I, not the cover I of think, Communion. I, I have not seen that, but... I mean, no, but... it certainly but, spoke uh, to me when I first saw it. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, millions of people have there, had that, where you look at the cover and you go, Jesus. Yeah, there is something about that, but... Um, I mean, I'm an artist, and I can't, I can't draw it accurately enough. I've only done one that I think is kind of close... And it feels like it, but it doesn't. It, it. I can't say this is anatomically correct or this is exactly it. Um, but I don't. I. I don't think that's what they look like anyway. Um, I, I think they. They look like whatever you expect them to look like, and and therefore, if right. Well, I think that's what he was sort of saying. Right? Was that you know that was sort of the image that caught on. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh but but see and again this goes into the whole ambiguity of this whole experience which is we're not going to let you know what exactly we look like. Uh we're just going to put on another mask and when you gravitate away from what we look like now we'll look like something else or we'll manifest as something else. And and I I mean I think that's been the case throughout recorded history when you talk about fairies <laughs> and uh <laughs> and and that kind of stuff i mean um i think it's all masks of the same the same thing the same presence whatever you want to call it um but i mean as far as like david jacobs goes no i don't <laughs> now i'm sorry i i can't I can't get into, you know, I respect Hopkins and Jacobs both for being the first guys to really examine this seriously, but, you know, I've got my issues with how they retrieve their data, um, you know, how how the, the conclusions that they reached, if they reached, a, if they call it a conclusion, but what they've put out as far as uh, this is what I think is going on. I no, I don't agree with that at all. Well, it's weird. I mean, it sounded like he agreed with that up until he then mentioned David Jacobs maybe being onto something with, you know, in terms of the skull and his, you know, thinking that that they're here to blend us out of the scene through hybridization. Uh, you know, it, it, up until he said that, I thought he would have believed that that was the same thing as as what he was talking about with the. Anonymous, you know, hypnotist that he actually saw in action, um, who was either I mean, Bud Hopkins it, or David Jacobs. It, well, isn't that what Jacobs has been saying since the threat? Is that it's a breeding program meant to meant to phase us out? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, mean I, you know, he, Bill said that his view has changed, but really, his view has changed as far as I can tell from, and I've read all of his books. The view yeah. changed from, oh my God, this is a malevolent thing. We don't know what they're doing. Uh-huh. Straight into oh my god, they're the evil thing that they're doing is this. They're breeding us out. They're breeding right. themselves in, and they're trying to convince us that that's going to create a great world. Um, so really, his view evolved from malevolence into answering what that malevolence is doing. Well, my answer to that is a lot like what Valet said: is uh, <laughs> you know this has been going on enough years now. We'd start seeing these hybrid kids walking around. <laughs> We're not. 
Um, and there's no, uh, you know, and again, I mean, does it bear repeating again? I guess it does, that there's no physical evidence of this whatsoever at all. And again, if you are a, uh, you're a culture that is able to do what they do, whether they're dimensional, whether they're extraterrestrial, however they get here, it is vastly superior. I'm not talking about 100 years or 200 years ahead of us. I'm talking vastly superior to us technologically. Then would you really go through all of that to repopulate the planet and to, uh, you know, as Bill said, pick the best subjects and to go through all this rigmarole for, what, the past 60 plus years now um, to do that? I think you'd have a lot better ways to do that, you know? Or 900 um, if you're going by the skull dating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, uh, you can travel vastness of space, you can travel through dimensional portals or whatever, uh, but yet you're, you're infinitely interested in our reproductive capabilities and, and creating a hybrid race and all of this. That I'm sorry, again, if you could do all that with travel then all of that would be, as I said before, no problem. So, And then how does that I, stack up against saying that, that most abductees or alleged abductees, and especially the ones that have those types of stories, mm-hmm. are uh, masking sexual abuse? I mean, I've I mean how, can, how can you have your cake and eat it too? How can, how can it be both at the same time? I, I don't know. How can it be both? Yeah. I don't think it is both. Well, no, you? but I, but I mean, I thought at first what he was saying was people with those kinds of stories are uh, mostly sexual abuse victims. But then when he started talking about David Jacobs, it was clear that he might, right, actually believe that that that's true, or at least that that hybrid stuff makes sense. See, I, I you know, again, most of this stuff is regression retrieved. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what Bill actually believes. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to separate because maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm handling him wrong because maybe what's what's really true about Bill Burns is that he is a writer and a storyteller and he loves a good story and so in his head he plays out all these various scenarios to what he thinks are their logical conclusions and so they all make sense to him at the same time on that level as a storyteller right and so he's not he's not really He's not really giving us what he actually thinks is happening. He's just giving us scenarios. All the scenarios played out. Yeah. 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 I don't. I mean, I did. I didn't get the feeling that he believed everything that he was, you know, uh, pontificating on right. tonight about that. I mean, I I thought he was just giving us rundown scenarios. Uh-huh. I mean, again, it's it's uh, uh, everything comes down to to rules of evidence and a lot of. What was talked about, really, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, to me, it should just be discarded because the, the rules of evidence are just not playing out in, in a lot of the, what was talked about. Um, you know, the, the star child skull, skull maybe, the, maybe the jury's still out on that one. I don't know enough about it to really talk about it. I, you know, I've read uh, lightly here about it there and here and there, but I... I, I got to be honest. I'm probably a little bit tainted by my own outlook and my own experiences to say that there is no skull. Um, 
at least in the stance of, uh, you know, unless you believe that um, there's an extraterrestrial thing going on with UFOs and there's a, uh, whatever you want to call it, occult dimensional quantum thing going on. Um, I mean, there could be, I guess, but I, you know, for my money... I, I don't think, judging by the fact, <clears throat> the simple fact that we really have no physical evidence at all of this phenomena, um, besides a landing trace case, which can't really be definitively connected to an alien source, because um, that's the one thing people will call me on, well, there's landing trace cases and there's implants. Well, no implant has ever been shown to be anything but something common. Um you know, and I know that UFO hunters did a big thing on on uh, implant removal and that kind of stuff. Um, but, I mean, facts are facts. If somebody pulled something out of someone tomorrow uh, that was genuinely otherworldly or genuinely mechanical or what have you, we'd know about it. It, it, it would be big news. This would be a big thing. It should shake this whole field to its core. It hasn't happened. It has not happened. Um, so we got nothing. So to me, that speaks to exactly what you and I have been talking about, which is the physicality of this, maybe the inability for this thing to become physical at all times. And if it can't exist in this reality, it just fades away. There is no data to get. Um, even if you could go up to a landed alien craft, quote-unquote alien craft, and take a scraping off of it, put it in a, a sealed container, the fact of the matter is it cannot exist here for that long. Every, it, just, it just can't. Um, uh, why, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, you know, quantum physicists would tell you why something can't exist in, in an alternate reality for any definite period of time. That's the feeling I get. That's why we have no proof, is because proof cannot exist here um, past a certain point in time, which is why UFO sightings most often are short. Um, I believe this whole thing is working on windows of some kind, and I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but windows of opportunity and, and that kind of thing. So... A skull? I, you know, I'm just not not seeing it. Unless there is um, an extraterrestrial component to this that visited here years ago and tried to do something and left. Well, I don't it even know. Work. Why does it have to be that? I mean, you, we've already we've got this Hobbit race, right? That's been discovered, um, and they they they've just figured out that that these might not be human. They might have been something that grew up alongside humans in the way that you know right. Neanderthal did and all that. So right. what if there was a race like that that came out of the jungle and befriended sure. this woman and, you know... Sure. They copulated. Well, I, mean, they copulated I mean, again... They copulated like, a lot. Yeah. They had a lot I mean, of sex. <laughs> what, if, what if it's, uh... Sorry. You know, the, Sorry the, 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 the cradle boarding thing uh, on a ridiculously malformed child... Um, I mean, I, I think it's it's funny to think that we know of every abnormality that can possibly occur when new abnormalities are showing up in animals and people every day. 
uh, different variations of that abnormality, different severities of that. Um, but it's called the Star Child Skull. Let's, you know, let's not forget what's being, you know, posturized here is that it's alien. And, um, and otherwise, it would just be another malformed skull that some guy would be doing DNA tests on to find out what it is. But no, it's been presented as this. That's the problem. You know, well, Jeff, uh, I'm just happy to have found out that the guys like you and me we're not delusional. Oh, we're delusional. Oh, um, <laughs> but uh, but in a good way. Um, <laughs> no, I. Yeah, I'm glad we had that conversation because I feel like that's something I haven't heard um, come out of Bill. You know, that whole dialogue about abductions and. Um, for my money, I'd like to see him go that direction and apply all that to ufology, you know? Because um, I think he could probably dispel a whole lot of crap that's floating around out there. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's obviously his his real uh, uh, his real talent for 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 that kind of thing and recognizing, you know, what's a what's a delusion, what's a psychosis, and this, that, and the other, and and to be able to, to uh, I'd love to sit him down with, you know. 10 people who are all having an, an experience of some sort and have him give kind of a like uh, yeah, like kind of a, like a cursory look at some of the testimonies that, that, that come out and, and say what other possible avenues that, that could be going on there. I mean, I think that's really something that uh, he, he could be a huge asset to um, to ufology in that, in that specific expertise that he has. We said we'd talk about Meyer. Let's talk about Meyer. Uh, you and I, I, I finally broke my cardinal rule, and, and, and I watched the silent revolution of truth with you. Uh, yeah. And that was the first time you had seen it, correct? Uh, yeah, all the way through. Uh-huh. All right. Well, what, what, I, what I found interesting, here's what I thought I was going to get out of it from watching the trailer. From watching the trailer, I thought I would be laughing all the way through it. Um. But I wasn't, because mainly it was um, sort of sad uh, cult indoctrination propaganda. Queasy-worthy. <laughs> Queasy-worthy. I mean, the first bit of it is, is you know, uh, some of the UFO stuff and trying to prove that that's real or whatever. But then eventually it's, it slowly but surely slides into, um, what, what does Billy Meyer think about abortion? Hey, what does Billy Meyer? Right. How many kids should you have in a family? What does Billy Meyer think about mm-hmm. population? You know, it's like, you know, Billy Meyer uh, says that that all religions are crap except for him. He's he's the real deal. So you should believe what he's saying and don't believe religions, which is all right. cult. Is all a cult? And his, you know, they they interview his son, who is completely out of his mind. I mean, his eyes are crazy. He's got those crazy dilated <laughs> eyes and he's you know crying about what it was like growing up and and you really kind of feel for him and and all this yeah um but then says you know and, and our mother tried to tear us apart but she can't do that because he's a crazy right. cult indoctrinated guy um but here's what i find this is why ufos are so f- fascinating in in their or ufology is so fascinating and how disgusting it is in some ways. Uh, okay, here you have a movie. <laughs> it should be a documentary about an, an alien contactee, you know, a guy who claims 
to have this enormous contact experience continuing to go on. But the guy directing it can't separate himself enough from the movie for it to be about that. Right. And so what that means is, well, that's part one. So part one is you don't know really what the movie is about. Is it about Billy Meyer? Is it about Michael Horn's journey to discover Billy Meyer? Because Michael Horn's such a fucking Mm -hmm. egomaniac that he has to marry himself to the narrative of this thing. So you don't really know who it's about. And then by the end of it, Mm -hmm. you realize, oh, it's not about either Michael Horn or a contactee. It's about starting a fucking cult. That's what this movie is about. (laughs) It's about join this cult. Calm down, Jeremy. (laughs) Relax. Uh, Can I get you a drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is... (laughs) The thing is... (laughs) Now, here's what's really pathetic about all of that is that it's completely irrelevant because who's buying this DVD? Nobody I know. You know what I mean? It's not like Meyer is relevant now. You know, maybe if this came out in you know the early '80s or something, uh, late '70s, this would this would have been something. But um, but now it's just completely irrelevant. So I kind of I guess I take solace in that in that I know that people aren't going to be indoctrinated into this cult by going, wow, yeah, that really looks good. Those those dinosaur photos are really holding up. You know. Uh, but I mean, Mm. and of course it's insulting to our intelligence. You know, there's that long video shot of Meyer holding what is clearly a plastic toy gun wandering in and out of frame. (laughs) The camera is stationary and he's just wandering in and out of frame for no apparent reason. He's not shooting the gun. He's just aiming it at various things and walking around, you know, the way you would do when you had a camera on you. (laughs) Yeah. At a good distance. I mean, it's just ludicrous. The whole thing is ludicrous. But as you pointed out. Quite possibly, those faked photos don't begin and end with UFOs. No, no. Probably all of them are fake. He, all of the posing as the, you know, the phantom, the guy who is the hunter of serial killers and all of this. And I know it sounds campy when you say it out loud, but it's not fun campy the way the trailer is. If you see the trailer and, and you want a good laugh, just stick with the trailer because it's not campy fun. It's, it's just boring cult indoctrination, the movie. Which is sad, because there's nothing, yeah. like, I wish I could at least recommend it on the level of, hey, have a good laugh, but I can't. Um, yeah. But, but I think that you and I have figured out, probably, what is the truth behind Billy Meyer. Because there was one person in that documentary who struck me as truthful, and it was somebody who, when I met Michael Horn, he was saying, you've got to meet this woman, this, whatever the hell her name is, this UN ambassador. Furball Chang. Furball Chang. Uh... Which I now just made racist. So okay, so well, first let's start. Let's start with your piece of it. Here's what you put together, Billy Meyer. This is and, and this is all in the film. You can get this all from the film. So go ahead, you start us off. How did Billy Meyer start out? Well, I mean, let's preface it by saying it's not. I mean, by no means is it a proven theory. It's just my idea by watching this. No, you know, but you tell like, me which makes more sense. Can- what we're about to tell you. Or or uh, the the alien plastic gun and the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, obviously, Myers spent time in India, uh, where he met this woman, uh, Miss Chang, and uh, she seems to relate that. No, you got to start uh, before this. Well, what am I He's saying before bum. that? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> He yeah, ends up in well, a mental institution. <laughs> duh. Um, I mean, this is all in the film. He's a vagabond. No, he ends up I mean, in a I, mental institution. I think he's a, he's a vagabond. Let's not say bum. Okay. That's insulting. But let's say bu- um, bum. Uh, let's say vagabond, okay. rather. Um, 
you know, he's traveling about, you know, uh, from what looks like, you know, he's eking out a meager existence doing something. Um, and, uh, and, and he meets this, this woman, uh, who I'm not sure that they really focused enough on her to get her whole story into the movie, but apparently, uh, she had seen UFOs and she had, um, talked about Samyazi and Askat or whoever the hell it was. I can't keep track of all the goofy ass names. Um, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, did Meyer meet her and pick up on whole, her whole story? Um, which again, may or may not be true, but she's saying it. Uh, and then he's the one who took that and ran with it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it just to watch in the movie. That's the impression okay, that I let got. Me, let, me, let me go into detail okay. of what this is. Because if Michael Horn had footage of her saying that she saw UFOs with Billy Meyer while he was in India, that would have made it into the film. Clearly, he doesn't have that footage because she didn't say it. What she right. says in the film is that she used to take this footage of these UFOs in India. She used to, I don't know, what, talk with or something, Sim Jazz and Jezebel or whoever. Uh, uh, Ascot yeah, and Arlene or whoever. And uh, <laughs> and so many, many years later, decades later, she um, she comes across Billy Meyer material and remembers, hey, wait a minute, there was, there was a Swiss dude here way back when, when I was taking this footage and stuff, and this, it's got to be the same guy. He's talking about Ascat and all that stuff. Holy crap, this must be the same guy. He must know them too. So she travels to his compound, she meets him, it's like meeting a brother, right? So, in Michael Horn's view, this supports that Billy Meyer was was seeing UFOs and, and new Ascat and all that crap uh, back then. No, what this is really saying is that Billy Meyer was hanging around this woman, she's telling him her stories, she's forgetting this, you know what I mean? And he's just stealing her fucking story. He's just completely stealing her contact story and making it his own. I think that makes the most sense. That's the impression that the movie made on me. Now, whether or not there's more information that I don't know about, whatever, I, the movie conveys that to me. That's when I, when I watched it, that's the very thing I said to you was, it sounds like he just lifted her story. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> stranger crap has happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I just, I mean... I don't know. Meyer fish in a barrel. I mean, give me a break. Um, I don't even know that it needs that kind of thought even in it to, to 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 make any sense of it. It's so convoluted and it's so twisted and weird. Uh, and and like I said, it's the bottom of the garbage pan that you follow. Now, wasn't it. Michael so, Horn going around saying that there was a contest uh, and this eleven-year-old alien girl won the contest to that's to name what I his remember. movie, The Silent Revolution of Truth? Mm-hmm. Because in The Silent Revolution of Truth, he makes it clear that the contest was to name Billy Myers, uh, whatever, his philosophy, if you will. And, yeah. um, and, and that The Silent Revolution of Truth, he just used, he, you know, originally he used it for the song that he then has a little shitty video for. Uh, right. So, which is it? Now, I don't want you to come to the forum and answer that, because you're banned. <laughs> so we'll just leave it hanging as a rhetorical. <laughs> Need we say more about any of this? No, it's ridiculous that we're even bringing it up, but, you know, it's, uh, 
It's fish in a barrel. It's it's like every other bonehead UFO case, like like it's you know of that ilk. It's it's you know you don't even have to go into that kind of depth to try and figure out what's going on there. It's crap in this story. And that's the story of how Jeff and Jeremy got out of the well and Parasopia. The end. Rest well, my sweet Jeremina. But, Grandpa, that didn't answer anything. I mean, the nice man who came to rescue them, he just left without them. Oh, don't be so sure. For one of those young men was me. But, Grandpa, how could one of those young men be you? You're old. Don't sass me, girl! <laughs> <laughs>